All right, two weeks ago, Mike did an amazing sermon where he challenged us to practically apply the series that we're in, the Supernatural Storyline series. And I was very appreciative of that message. And in that sermon, Mike essentially said this, that as we're hearing this series and going through it, that the bar has been raised for all of us. Not just me, he wasn't even talking about me. He was saying, for the church, the bar has been raised in terms of how we're seeing and understanding and learning about the Bible. Many of you who have encouragingly got to me and said that you are seeing things that you haven't seen before, and they largely have been in the Bible long before I said them. In fact, I am not original in any of this stuff at all. This has been there. Mike said the bar has been raised. And so what I want to do is just give you a very simple, a very simple sort of hermeneutic, right? A hermeneutic is how to understand the Bible. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to do any of that. A lot of this, what Mike alluded to, had to do with just meditating on the word. So let me give you a simple process where all of this starts for me with one thought and two questions. I want to share this with you so that you can raise the bar, as Mike said, in your own study. Very simple. All of this stuff starts for me always with one thought and two questions. Some of this you've heard before. If you haven't, feel free to write this down. But this is how you start to see your Bibles differently. One thought, two questions. Here's the thought. This is how I approach the Bible every time I read it is that God is intentional. Intentional. I think many of us read the Bible and, and things that we don't understand, get names that we can't pronounce, places that we'll never go to. They all just seem like random statements that God put in his Bible, but they are intentional. Everything in the Bible is intentional. God wanted his people, both Old and New Testament, both the, uh, the Israelites and the church, he wanted them to know this, the stuff that's in there. God is intentional. It seems like a duh statement, but many of us don't read our Bibles like that. We just, we, we look for the practical things, right? So what, why, are we, why are we going through this? Like, where, 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 what do I apply? Like, the Bible isn't just for us to apply everything, right? We're not law people, we're grace people. So sometimes we want to understand what God has done, even if there's nothing for us to do, but to continue to do what we're already doing. We, we approach the Bible to mosaic, like the law, like, okay, what, the, what is it commanding me to do? And sometimes the command is be still and know that I am God. So one thought is that God is intentional. Every time I read, I think everything in there is intentional. Everything. I don't think anything in the Bible is accidental, random, nothing. Everything Jesus said, did, every place he went, all of it was intentional. Because he said, my will is to do the will of the Father. I always do what pleases the Father. So everything he did and said was the Father's will. God is intentional. That's the thought. 
Here's the first question I ask every time I read the Bible. Knowing that God is intentional, here's the first question I ask when I read. I say this out loud. Lord, why is this detail here? Why did you put this in your word? I say this out loud to the Lord all the time. I'm reading and be like, wait a minute. Lord, why did you put this detail here? Why did you tell us this? You're intentional. I know that. You put this here for a reason. Why did you want your people to know this detail? And I'll sit there and think, huh. Now, the Lord never says, well, Curtis, here's why, and <laughs> explain it on Sunday to the people. If anybody's hearing the Lord like that, this isn't the church for you. Because I, the Lord isn't talking like that. He wasn't talking to many people like that. Even in the Bible. Unless you're an Old Testament prophet that he brought into the future to peek at the church or something, then talk to me. I'm not waiting for an audible voice, but I'm just trying to think, like, Lord, why is this detail here? Why did you put this here? What do you want us to know about this? This seems like a random statement. But what does this place really mean? Why are they going to this place? Why did they say this to the angel of the Lord? Why did he, Lord, why did you heal the dude by putting your fingers in his ears and then spitting instead of just saying you're healed? Why did you go to the little girl's house and say Talitha Kaum and raise her from the dead? Why didn't you just do like the, the servant? Your servant's been healed. Why is this detail here? Second question that I ask every time I read. Does this detail explain or confirm other details that may or may not make sense? Like, okay, if this is here, where else in the Bible does it, does it confirm something or explain something that I may have understood but now see it differently or it just may not make sense to me? It all begins with just meditating. This isn't, I read from a book and I'm regurgitating what I've read from a book to you. That's not good preaching to me. Good preaching is you wrestle with the text, you read, you pray, the Lord gives you things, and you check, double check, and triple check to make sure it's biblical, and then you present it, or at the very least, you make sure people know, I can't prove this, but here's why I think it. One thought, God is intentional. First question, why is this detail here? If he's intentional, you put this here for a reason. We miss so many things because we don't really believe God is intentional. And so all of a sudden, when we start seeing these connections, we're like, yo. And it's like, God's like, been there for thousands of years. I'm not special or unique. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking and trying to answer these two questions at the very least, all right? Brief seminary class real quick on just how to understand the scriptures. All right, today is or was in Jesus' life, Palm Sunday, which arguably marks the most important week in human history. Some close to 2,000 years ago, Jesus, on a Sunday morning, is riding to Jerusalem on a donkey where hundreds of people, at the very least, are laying down palm branches on the ground, screaming, Hosanna! 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. And they were doing it so much, the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders that were there got offended. And they said, Jesus, man, what you going to do about this? They understood these people are treating you like you're God. What you going to do something? And Jesus said, man, if they stop talking, the stones are going to say something. I, they, when, I, when I go see the Lord, I'm going to ask, could you show me the moment and the looks on their faces when you said certain things? I just want to see how they look. When he said, if they stop talking, the stones will cry out. I just want to see the look on their face and be like, huh? Who is this dude think he is? This was the last week of Jesus' life as he would be killed by crucifixion on Friday at 3 p.m. is when he would take his last breath. No one knew when he was marching him on the donkey what was going to happen except Jesus. And by no one, that includes the cosmic powers of darkness. They had no idea what was going on in this moment. Today, we're going to look at the natural and supernatural significance of the Passion Week, his arrival to Jerusalem on a donkey, and the palm branches. Now, there are many layers here because we're in a series. I'm not going to say everything that I could today because we will return as we get towards the end of the series to the scene. But there are some layers worth examining based on where we are in the storyline so far, so we'll look at them. Let's begin. John 12, beginning in verse 12, says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is sitting on a, on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 16 is a key to understanding how the Jews in the moment were reacting to things that Jesus was doing, including riding on a donkey. I think oftentimes commentators sometimes I think miss a point where we talk about these things as if all the people knew what was going on as it was happening, but we have to remember what the gospel stories are. They're stories sometimes decades later remembering what happened. They're not writing it as it's happening. You see, so when you read the gospels and you read these stories, they're recorded later. Mark was the first gospel that was recorded closer to Jesus' death, somewhere between 7 to 12 years. 
but the other ones are sometimes 20, 30 years later. So these are not written accounts as it's happening. This is important to know because in verse 16, this is what it says. His disciples did not understand these things at first. You see, John is writing this way later on, remembering and realizing we had no idea what was going on when we were saying Hosanna while he was riding on a donkey. So if the disciples who were with Jesus had no idea what this really meant, then the people in the crowd who weren't with Jesus could not have either. Now, it's possible that some people were sure they were looking for the Messiah, looking for the prophet. They understood some dynamics, but no one knew what was going on in this scene except Jesus. They didn't get it. So when you read the Gospels and you realize in the moment these people aren't reading the, seeing this the way we see it. We read the Bible knowing the end of the story. We know what happens. So we read into it their understanding. They have no clue. That's why they're so fickle. One day it's like, hey, we love this dude. The next day they're like, man, crucify him. <laughs> they're just regular old folk like us. This is key. The disciples did not, and you'll see this repeatedly, in your Bible, and after Jesus was raised from the dead, then the disciples realized, oh, this is what, these were the verses saying that. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Now, all of the Gospels share this story with some different detail. It's a rare occasion that all four Gospels share the same narrative. Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are typically called the Synoptic Gospels. They have pretty much the same stories. Most of them borrowed from the Gospel of Mark. It was the first Gospel. John is different. It's a different Gospel. But this story is in all four of them, highlighting its significance. So we're going to do first, we're going to look at this natural storyline of this scene. And by that, what I mean is, how did the Jews just naturally just process what was happening? Because they could not have seen what we're going to talk about in the supernatural ramifications. They would not have seen this. They didn't even understand the natural side of it. On the natural side, there's a couple things that we're going to look at. But first, it's important to understand the significance of the donkey. That's a funny word to me. I say that a lot of times, make my kids laugh. You stop being a donkey. I used to nickname people young donkeys and all that. We just laugh at it, right? <laughs> For the most part, donkeys in Scripture are a common animal that many people have. Multiple references to donkeys being used to carry food, plow fields, carry, take people from one destination to the next. I mean, you see this as early as Abraham saddled his donkeys when God said, let's go. I mean, you go back to there was just people had donkeys. In that sense, not a big deal. Donkeys were everywhere. But they do, however, have a supernatural significance that other animals do not. Many of us are familiar with this. In Numbers 22, there's this, you know about Balaam's donkey, right? Where Balaam's riding this donkey, and the donkey can see the angel of the Lord. Balaam and them can't, and the donkey's like, nah, fam. 
I'm not going there. He gets mad. And at one point, this, this is what it says in Numbers 22, 25. Here's what, here's what happens. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed back against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her. Right? So the donkey's walking. She sees the angel of the Lord, and she starts backing up. They call it women's intuition somewhere else, right? She's backing up like, nope, 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 nope. Crushes his foot, and he beats the donkey. Then as we know in the story, eventually the donkey sits down, and God allows the donkey to supernaturally talk. Now, those of you who were old enough to remember Mr. Ed, this is where it came from. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But somewhere somebody would make that statement, and y'all would believe it. Cut that stuff out. So listen. The donkey supernaturally is speaking to Balaam. And the detail for me that's the most crazy is that scene is that Balaam talks right back to the donkey. <laughs> now listen, I don't know, maybe it's me. I got a cat. If my cat says any human words, we just got back from vacation. If my cat says, where you guys been all this time? Now, we're different people. I'm not going to say, well, Merck, we went on vacation. <laughs> I'm going to the archdiocese to get a priest and exercise the demon out of that cat, or we're putting our home on the market. I'm not. But the animal is talking, and Balaam is angry and talks back to the animal. Doesn't even think for a moment, wait a minute, how are you even speaking right now? You could be so offended that you don't even care about what's going on. You don't even see what God is doing. You could be so mad, you don't even see what God is doing. The, bear, the, the donkey's talking, right? After it crushes his foot, this is, a, this is significant. The next time we see a donkey function supernaturally is in Judges 15. Here's what it says. This is about Samson, right? Here's what it says about Samson. Judges 15, beginning in verse 14. It says this. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Sidebar. When you're trying to attack somebody, I don't get, like, you know what movies when they be like, ah, and they rush them? Like, if you're facing them, that's one thing. But when you're sneaking up on them, don't say nothing. Like, as soon as you hear the, ah, that's, I'm going to know you're there. <laughs> Why were the Philistines shouting? Samson was strong. I'd have been like, Ah! I don't, I'm, this is me. But scripture is scripture. So the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon After the shouting, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So if you shout, that's like this enemy. This new, hey, here we go. Let's get busy. It's like Shazam! Boom, and now we're ready to fight. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Fresh, not stale, right? Intentional. A fresh jawbone. Put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down 1,000 men. 
This is significant. You know why? Because no jawbones donkey is going to kill a thousand. Maybe a couple at best, but then eventually it's just bone itself is going to break as it collides against other bones. But no, not this donkey. This jawbone took out a thousand people. Samson was just swinging that thing. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Knocking them all down. No jawbone is going to kill a thousand men unless supernaturally is supernaturally given. So if you think about this, in the bruising of Balaam's heel, his foot, and the defeat of God's enemies by Samson, who at the time was the undefeated servant of God. A donkey was used to accomplish that. Consider that when you imagine Jesus riding on a donkey whose heel will be bruised by Satan, an allusion to Genesis 3.15, who at that time, and still is, the undefeated servant of God, it makes it more than coincidental that a donkey was used to ride in there. Ironically, that's just the appetizer. That's a sidebar. Let's eat some ribs. Are there three aspects of the natural storyline to note from what the donkeys represented to the Jews? We've seen one of them in John 12, the text that we read. We'll come back to that. So let's start with the two that we have not seen. That for the Jews, Jesus riding on a donkey, and I'm saying, blessed, the king of Israel, why that would matter to them. All right, here's the first scene. 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. This is at the end of David's life, and his son, his son is trying to take the throne from Absalom. Is sinfully trying to take the throne from him, but it's also a prophetic judgment against him for his sin with Bathsheba. So Absalom's trying to take the throne, and Bathsheba's worried that her son Solomon is not going to become king because Absalom is gaining momentum. So here's the scene that happens. 1 Kings 1, beginning in verse 28. Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversary, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May the Lord, the King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, so they came before the king, and the king, told, so the king said to them, Take with you the servants of the Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule and bring him down to Gihon. Let me skip down to verse 38. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, there's a lot of ites around that, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by the noise. Now a mule was a little different than a donkey, but in essence, a kingly ride declaring your kingship on an animal that's not a horse. 
a horse was like a warlike animal. When you rode a horse, you were saying, like, we, we, we about to fight. When you rode a donkey or a mule, a little different. No one's worried about a bunch of people on donkeys. They're like, man, what they doing? <laughs> donkeys aren't running that fast. But when the horses come, it's war. It's not uncommon for that. So for the Israelite identity, for them to see a king riding on something that's not a horse, a mule or a donkey, to them, that's similar to what David did and then what Solomon did. It's not unrealistic. If you're a Jew, in the day you see Jesus riding on a donkey, you're not first thinking, where are the horses? Where are the horses? They know of their greatest king, David, and then his descendant, Solomon. Solomon's kingship is established by riding through the city and people proclaiming he's the king, very similar to what's happening in John chapter 12. For a Jew who was there seeing Jesus, it wouldn't have been that uncommon. They would have connected, hey, this is what kings do this. They don't always come in on horses ready for war. Second scene that the Jews would have been aware of. This was in the Bible. This scene is, is not. It's in, a different, it's in a different book. It's in a book called the Maccabees. It's in the book of the Apocrypha. It's in a book where from Matthew, from Malachi in the Old Testament to Matthew, there's 400 years of human history. Now, the Jews, they have, they have literature that's all recorded that means something to them. For us, we call that the intertestamental period. If you're Roman Catholic, you call it the deuterocanonical. So it's not exactly the canon of Scripture, but to the Jews, this was important to their understanding of Jesus riding on a donkey. So let me explain to you what happened. Let me read to you first what 2 Maccabees says. It says this, Judas Maccabeus and his followers, under the leadership of the Lord, recaptured the temple in the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the altars which foreigners had set up in the marketplace and destroyed the other places of worship that had been built. They purified the temple and built a new altar. Then, with the fire started by striking flint, they offered sacrifice for the first time in two years, burned incense, lighted lamps, and set out the sacred loaves. After they had done all this, they lay face down on the ground and prayed that the Lord would never again let such disaster strike them. They begged him to be merciful when he punished them for future sins and not hand them over anymore to barbaric pagan Gentiles. They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the same day of the same month on which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles. That was back when Nebuchadnezzar did that in the book of Daniel. The happy celebration lasted eight days, like the Festival of Shelters, and the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the Festival of Shelters wandering like wild animals in the mountains and living in caves. But now, carrying green palm, palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed that the Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each year. So here, Judas Maccabeus led the revolt against the Greeks 
And in celebration of that, they were grabbing palm branches while he was riding on a donkey, and they were shouting in praise. This is real Jewish history. For them, this is the beginning of what we now know as Hanukkah. So this is real history to them. It's not in our Bibles, but it's real history. This is what Hanukkah, what they represent, the eight days of Hanukkah, right? This is what it represents. This is where it comes from, right here. It's seen. The other backstory is essentially this. When Alexander the Great took over the world, he introduced Hellenistic Greek to the entire world. And so that became sort of, you live there, you get, just like, you know, when we go, do you speak English? You speak English? You had to understand Greek and know Greek culture. This is what's happening in the world. Well, after Alexander died, there were some of his generals divided up the world into land pieces that other men could have and leave in his absence or in his death, really. And one of those men was a man named Antiochus. They had these, these interesting, Antiochus IV Epiphanephras. If I said it wrong, he's dead. Don't worry, don't be offended for him. I know people get offended these days, but I don't get offended for him. But here's what he did. Here's what he did. This is what started the Maccabean revolt, which created Hanukkah, which led to him being praised, riding on a donkey over palm branches. This is what it did. Here's what it says. The ultimate breaking point came when Antiochus erected a, an altar of Zeus on top of the altar of burnt offerings and sacrificed a pig on December 16th, 167 BC. The events of the raging Antiochus Epiphanes are foretold Many Bible scholars believe by the accounts recorded in Daniel 11, including the military strikes on Egypt and the outrages perpetrated in Jerusalem. The details of the Jewish revolt can be re recorded in the book of Maccabees found in the Apocalypse. So, so this guy sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple. And they're like, that's it. We're going to war. And they take back. They push back and take it back. The temple and all of it. And so here is riding on a donkey, praise be to God. If you're Jewish, when you see Jesus coming in, you're thinking Hanukkah, the Maccabees. Yes, he's coming like that. This is partly why they thought Jesus was going to be militaristic. It wasn't just what David did. It was because Judas Maccabeus, they got to remember, when that scene happened, and Jude, they didn't know who the Messiah was. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if he was, they had no idea. So when they're praising him, they might be aware of, Ze of Zechariah 9, which we're going to go to in a second. They don't know all the details that we know. They could be thinking he's maybe the Messiah. He obviously was not. But for them... Being enslaved in the captivity by the Greeks was terrible. It was terrible. And here comes a guy who frees them from the tyranny of the Greeks. This is real Jewish history. Keep in mind, they had no idea when the Messiah was coming. So as they, as they do this celebration, create this holiday, which for them is Hanukkah, this is partly why they thought Jesus was going to be militaristic, because Judas Maccabeus was militaristic. And the last time that we saw someone 
riding on a donkey and be called the king or celebrated for what he did was that moment. For the Jews, it's the big deal. Now remember, even Jesus' disciples did not understand what was happening when they were yelling Hosanna in this scene in John 12. And they knew the Bible, but they didn't get it. So it makes sense that most of the other people didn't get what was happening. I would venture to say that the point we're about to look at right now, Zechariah's prophecy, they weren't all making the connection in the moment. They weren't thinking, oh, they were just yelling. I think they were yelling for two reasons. One, because he brought Lazarus back from the dead, and that was important to people. That was crazy. But then two, they were hoping, oh, since he's done this, He's going to go against the Romans like Judas did the Greeks. Oh, it's on. Let's go. They're cheering for what they hope he's getting ready to do. They have no idea what he is getting ready to do. The third thing to note from the natural storyline, which is clearly seen in the passage we read from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And here's what it says in Zechariah. It says, rejoice. Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, in the passage that we read, verse 16, remember, they didn't make the connection until after he was ascended, but after he was glorified. They didn't make the connection when it happened. Afterwards, they thought, Zechariah 9. This is what it says. This is what he did. Yo. <laughs> Remember, one of the wildest scenes in the New Testament is Matthew 28, right? Where Jesus has already resurrected, ascended. People have seen him. You got to remember, a lot happened when he died. 500 people came out of the tomb. We're going to get to all that later on. But uh, but a lot happens, right? Jesus shows himself all over the place. He's doing miracles. He's walking through doors. All the... And it says, when the disciples met him on the mountain, it says, some doubted. Some doubted. Now, I've been fooled by a good magician. How did you do that? A oh, sleight of hand. Well, slow down and let me see how your hands work. Jesus did this, no magic. This is supernatural evidence right here. And some still doubted. So as they're Having those moments, they don't all believe yet, but it's not until after the spirit comes in and starts to clarify, and they're like, oh. It could have been while they're retelling this story. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This meant they're starting to get it. This is why John said, I'm writing so that you may believe. Because people didn't get it. Luke was like, Theophilus, I'm writing so that you may have an accurate account of what happened. They're writing because they didn't get it. Even the disciples didn't. Even after he resurrected and right before he ascended. In Zechariah 9, this is a prophetic statement. It's a prophetic reality. God is basically saying, describing in graphic detail that your king is going to come on a donkey. 
And it says, righteous and having salvation is he. Now, keep in mind, at that time, salvation did not mean what it means to you and I. They were already the people of God. Salvation for them at that time meant freedom from the tyranny of the people that were around. Salvation for us means freedom from the tyranny of our own sinful temptations. So when they hear righteous and having salvation is he, they're not thinking, oh, my soul, I will be forgiven for my sins. They're thinking, well, we're already that. We're the people of God. Salvation is being free from these Romans. We need to be free from the Romans like Maccabeus freed them from the Greeks. They're not thinking the way we're thinking. We read it thousands of years later, having known the story. In the moment, they're looking at it based on what they know, what they're experiencing, how they feel. These are real people, real disappointments, real hopes, real desires, real anguish, real frustration. So they're not making a connection. Even if they thought, oh, this might be Zechariah 9, they're not making the connection as to what salvation is. And this scene in John 12, on Palm Sunday, only Jesus knows what's really happening and what's going to happen. I'm going to read you just three brief uh, statements from commentators on Zechariah, and then we're going to move past it. Here's one perspective. It says, though Jesus had been to Jerusalem several times to celebrate the three pilgrimage festivals, his final entry into Jerusalem had a special meaning. He was solemnly entering as a humble king of peace, traditionally entering the city on a donkey, symbolizes arrival in peace rather than as a war-ranging king arriving on a horse. As 20th century British scholar William Neal comments, our Lord enacts his first messianic symbol by entering Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. This, as Zechariah has depicted, was the means by which Messiah, when he came, would enter Zion, not as a conqueror upon a war horse, but as the prince of peace upon a humble beast of burden. Theologian N.T. Wright says this, Within his own time and culture, Jesus riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives across Kidron and up to the Temple Mount spoke more powerfully more powerfully than words could have done of a royal claim. The allusion to Zechariah is obvious. The so-called triumphal entry was thus clearly messianic. Now remember who's writing this. These aren't theologians who are writing it as it happened. These are theologians who are reading the Bible and the disciples already describing, oh, this was familiar to them. The people who watched it they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was happening. Much more could be said about the natural, but we'll get back to this in the series. Now the supernatural significance of the Passion Week. Remember how we started today's talk with these words. God is intentional. God is intentional. The Passion Week, as I said, is arguably 
the most important week in human history. But there's one other week that is either equally or maybe more important because of what it represents. The creation week. It was a creation week that's the most talked about week outside of the Passion Week. Creation Week, seven days. Passion Week. Details of all seven days are laid out in the scriptures. This afternoon, I'm going to send you all a resource through the app, through email, that just so that you can follow along each day what was happening in the Bible so that you can just read each day. I'd like you to read the accounts of the day. But we have to keep in mind that Jesus created the world. Now, we say, duh, we understand, duh, get it, right? <laughs> but let's be honest. We often think of God, the Father, as doing that, and Jesus kind of showing up in the New Testament. Right? Even though Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Right? We tend to think of the Father, Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament. But here's what Hebrews 1 Verses 1 and 2 reminds us, says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, so Jesus also created creation week. Day one, day two, day three. Day four, day five, day six, rest on the seventh. Jesus is the one in the Passion Week. Now, in the Creation Week, day one, which would arguably be Sunday, we see God saying, let there be light, establishing light over darkness. At the end of creation week, day six, we see God creating mankind. Everybody remember that, right? In day one of creation week, the light is established over the darkness. In day one of the passion week, the light is coming to overthrow darkness. Same God, creation, recreation. On day three in creation, God, Jesus, creates plants and trees for food. On day three of the Passion Week, the fig tree that did not bear fruit withers and dies supernaturally. The disciples are like, whoa, what happened? And Jesus explains that the withering fig tree is representative of Israel. That their sins against God have withered their soul, their spirituality. And so Jesus is coming to restore that. In day six of the creation week, Jesus brings life, 
via humanity into the world. On day six of the Passion Week, Jesus gave his life for humanity and the world. In Creation Week, God creates humanity and then rests it. In the Passion Week, God dies for humanity and then rests it. Now, why did I say rest it? Keep in mind that in the Old Testament, rest was also used for death. Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. And I quote, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away. When no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. Peace. They rest in their beds and walk, who walk in their uprightness. So you see, they, they die. They enter into peace. They rest. This euphemism of rest and death is not an uncommon connection in the Bible. Daniel 12, 13, is at the end of Daniel, as he's ending writing down his vision, here's what the angel who has shown him all these things says to him. Verse 12, beginning of chapter 12, verse 13, he says this, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So here you have dying as a euphemism for rest at times in the Bible. So here, Jesus, creation week, in six days, he creates, and then he rests. In the passion week, in six days, he dies for the creation. And then he rests. The similarities are intentional. Jesus creates humanity on day six. Jesus dies for humanity on day six. The one who created the world in six days and rested is the one who died for the world on day six. You see what's happening. God is reversing the effects of sin on humanity by retracing the pattern he laid out in creation and is unveiling it in the Passion Week. And the enemy has no idea what's going on. He has no idea what's happening right now. God is retracing the pattern because when sin came into the world, it changed everything. It destroyed everything that God said was good. And so to make it good, God is retracing the pattern. The same God, Jesus, who created the world is now retracing the pattern in seven days in a passion week. On day six, he creates humanity who sinned. On Friday, day six, he dies for humanity because of that sin. There's a lot more I could say about that, but we'll be back. Supernatural significance of the palm branches. The palm branches 
are an act of spiritual warfare. God is intentional. The palm branches are an act of spiritual warfare. In Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel is given a vision of the future temple. So Israel is in exile for their sins, and the Spirit is giving. So let me explain what happened. So when Israel was disobedient, God would send nations like Assyrians or Babylonians to take them into captivity, punish them. Take the land from them, all this stuff, punish them. And he would have prophets come before this exile. It's called the exile. So there were prophets that were coming before, but like saying, listen, God's judgment is coming. The foreign nation is going to come and take us into captivity. They would say that. People hated it. That's what Jeremiah, people hated Jeremiah. He was called the weeping prophet because he was crying all the time. Not because people wouldn't, he wasn't like, man, nobody listens to me. Nobody likes me. That's not why he was a weeping prophet. He was weeping because he knew what was coming and people didn't believe him. So you, got, so you got pre-exile, before the exile, but then you have God raising up prophets in the exile. These are exilic prophets. So like Ezekiel was one of them. In the midst of being, Ezekiel was now seeing visions and writing to tell Israel, oh, God's going to bring us out and we're going to rebuild a temple and all of it. And then you have prophets who are now proclaiming things about God after they're out of exile. That's how all the prophets work. Once you know that this, oh, this prophet is before they were taken, before they were locked up, put in a bottom, so before they got put in prison, there are prophets talking about them while they're in prison, and then prophets talking after they get out of prison. That's how all of the prophets work in the Bible. Once you know which is which, who, then you can read them and be like, oh, okay, this is why he's saying what he's saying. All the prophets work. They're either pre-exilic, pre-punishment, while being punished, or after punishment. All of them. Every, part, every prophet is all one of those. They fit in one of those three. And it's not hard to find out where. And then once you do that, you can read all of them. And be like, oh, this is why he's saying it. For us, it's like, man, it's a lot of words and names that I don't know. Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel is given a, few, a vision of the future temple. The Lord is specifically showing him all aspects of the new temple that will be built to replace the old one Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. This is why, if you've heard this term, this is why they call it Second Temple Judaism. That's why you'll hear that term in the theological, they use that term a lot. It just means Judaism after the Second Temple was built. Because the first one, the, the one that Solomon made, was destroyed because of his sins in particular. So the Lord is showing Ezekiel the inner sanctuary this is what it's called. It's described as the most holy place. And here's what it says in Ezekiel 41. This is in the most holy place where the presence of God is. Here's what Ezekiel is saying. To the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside, and on all the walls around, inside and outside, was a measured pattern. Right? So there's a pattern that God wanted everywhere. Here's the pattern. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees. A palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces. A human face toward the palm tree on one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. They were carved on the whole temple all around. From the floor to above the door, cherubim and palm trees were carved 
Similarly, the wall of the nave. Let's go a little deep for just a second, if you don't mind. So here, God is wanting, showing Ezekiel, that I want this image carved all over the inner sanctuary of the temple where my presence is. And what is that image? A cherubim facing a palm tree. Okay? So these are supernatural beings, cherubim. And how are they described? With the human face and the face of a young lion. This is the details that we know. Then there's a palm tree on all sides so that the human face, so they must be looking at different directions. Must have a face facing this way and a face that way. And one is a human, one is a young lion. And there's a palm tree. It's always facing. The human face and the young lion face are always facing the palm tree at all times. Remember, this is the imagery that God wanted created, and this was so important to God that he shows Ezekiel in a vision, a supernatural experience, that this imagery of a cherubim with a human face and a lion face will be facing a palm tree in the inner sanctuary of the temple where my presence will be. This is intentional. It's carved on the whole temple all the way around. So God now, I don't know what tools they had back then. Some would say they had better tools because they said we still can't make pyramids today the way they made them. But for my purposes, I'm not real handy. That's not my gift. So if there's no electric drill or nothing like that, that's work. To carve in, and that wood was that wood wood. It's not like the wood that we get today, right? It was that old, you know how they say they don't make them like they used to. They don't make that wood like they used to. That was the wood wood, right? Today, it's wood falls apart. People, you know, you, you got to pay extra money to get the good wood. This was the good wood. And they got to carve in hundreds of pictures of this image. This is significant to God, this image. Why? This is a supernatural declaration of war against the enemy. Has no idea that this image seen all over the temple is a supernatural prophetic picture of Palm Sunday, the beginning of the end of evil. Let's start with the imagery. You got a cherubim, a supernatural being with a human and lion face. Jesus, the supernatural being with a human face also called the Lion of Judah. Revelation 5. Don't believe me. Believe the scriptures. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the back, seated with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
So here you have this supernatural being that has a human face and a lion face looking at a palm tree. You have Jesus, who's a human, who's the lion of Judah, walking over palm trees. And he's doing it to destroy evil. The supernatural beings are constantly, in this image that God wanted carved everywhere, they're constantly facing a palm tree. So the lion's face is facing a palm tree, and the human face is constantly facing a palm tree. From the time Jesus got to earth, he is constantly facing the moment where he will ride into Jerusalem over palm branches, fulfilling the scripture to ride over the branches of the tree that he had carved into the inner sanctuary of the temple that represents his presence with his people. That supernatural lion, that human lion being the palm tree, were close to the heart of God. This was so important that God wanted Ezekiel to write it before it was even happening. This was hundreds of years away from the moment that this temple would happen and be be there, but he wanted them to know this is what you're going to build. They had no idea what was happening. The cosmic powers of darkness had no idea. It was just a tree to them. These are just branches. This isn't that serious. But to God, uh uh-uh. I'm always facing Jesus. I am the Lion of Judah. I am fully God, fully I'm a human being. I'm always facing that palm tree because that palm tree represents the beginning of the end of evil in this world. So when Zechariah says that, riding on a donkey. Jesus knows it's deeper than that. The rest of them, they have no idea. God placed this imagery right under the nose of everyone. They would have no idea that this picture that he wanted carved all over the place was a prophetic image of evil coming to an end. The palm tree is not just a tree. It's a, spirit of, it's a picture of warfare. It's a supernatural understanding from God of what's coming, and no one saw this at all. No one saw this. This imagery and its supernatural implications are intentional. more could be said about this but we'll be back one last layer remember God is intentional even in the particular tree that he chose the people are celebrating something different than Jesus when Jesus is riding in a donkey over palm branches and they're yelling Hosanna as I've said no one knows what's going to happen but God is intentional even in choosing the type of tree and branches and what they represent, down to the very name. The Jews are rightly celebrating the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah, laying palm branches down. But what they don't realize is they're also celebrating the departure of Jesus as the Messiah who laid his palms down. He let nails go through his palms. The Jews laid down palm branches. Jesus laid down his palms. 
Let me be clear. For the Jews, this is Palm Sunday. But for us, next Sunday is really Palm Sunday because the nails that went in his palm couldn't keep him. They couldn't keep him. They're celebrating the arrival of him on palm branches. We're celebrating the nails that went in his palm. God is intentional. Even choosing the name of the tree to represent the manner in which he would die. That through his palm. God is intentional. And there's so much more I want to say. But we'll be back. Father, as we, we drop the microphone <laughs> and we read and hear about your word, we see connections, we see things that may or may not make sense to us. We thank you that you've given us a word that is so put together that is so that there's so many layers to this that there have been millions of sermons and millions of books written and we're still learning new things. You would think that we have heard everything by now. Everything's been written and yet each Sunday, we are still preaching, trying to give a fresh word to encourage people. So today, in the life of you, Jesus, represented what we know as Palm Sunday, and there was natural and supernatural significance. For us, we're not laying down palm branches while you walk in the road, but we do celebrate the palms that show that nails went through them, that you keep even in eternity. For after you resurrected, you appeared to Thomas, and you said, here are the holes in my hands. Put your fingers through them. And then Revelation 4, you are described as a lamb who appears to be slain. So the, the markings of this Passion Week that that recreate what was lost in the creation week are so significant that you still wear, you still display the wounds in eternity. For we will see those wounds and remember for eternity what you have done for us. The lion, the lamb, the man. Lord, help us to be continually fascinated by your word. Help us to not let these annual 
reminders of these moments dull us to the fact of how significant they are. As we look next week at the supernatural implications of the crucifixion and resurrection, may we be more blown away, not by me or who's saying it, but by what's being said and what we're seeing in it. Help us to grow deeper in our confidence and our trust in your word and our confidence and our ability to obey you against the cosmic powers of evil in our society because of what we're learning. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kurt. We do have a few questions. The first one is that I'll read is this one. Uh, do you have any thoughts or even evidence that this week is accurate to the dates where this all happened? To the dates? No, because Jews had a different calendar. So I, we're not matching day for day in terms of April 2nd, 2000. I don't know. If, there's some people that think that, but I don't, I don't, I haven't studied that enough to be like, is the actual dates accurate? The week is, though. The week is that there was a Sunday, he rode, came in on a Sunday, and he died on a Friday at 3 p.m. That's accurate. The Bible describes that. He was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., six hours. And then he died. That's accurate. But the actual date, no, I don't, I don't know. That stuff is just kind of hard. I mean, we don't, I mean, people say Jesus was 33 years old. What did you see, his driver's license? Like, none of us really know. <laughs> I mean, again, it's just one of those things where you're shooting from half court, and you'll find out in heaven if you made it. I, we don't know if it was accurate in that sense. That's a great question, though. Uh, this, this next question is, <clears throat> excuse me, when reading the Bible myself, how do I know when I'm reading too much and depending too much on commentaries or actually getting something new out of the text? Well, if you're depending on commentaries, it would be because you're reading commentaries. And so commentaries aren't bad, but commentaries are really written to give like understanding of the original languages and some background stuff that you wouldn't get. Um, but I've heard many people, many pastors, like big name who would say, like, you shouldn't depend on commentary. They're just a resource. Mm -hmm. They're helpful. Now, when you have the responsibility to teach, like I do, you don't want to just be saying stuff, right? So you want to at least be like, is someone, is this, is this an idea that's new or someone else? Is this something familiar or is it? So I have some resources that I've run to to be like, all right, let me check and see if this is, if I can really say this and say it or not, or at least. If I'm not sure, let me qualify it when I say it. So when it comes to commentaries, if you're reading a lot of them, then you're going to be influenced by them. When it comes to the word, I think start with just, listen, God wants to, you know how in James, right? In James 1, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of wisdom, right? Because God loves to give wisdom. It says, don't be double-minded. But he want, God wants you to know his word. Like, it's not like God is like, well, hey, I ain't going to let nobody else know this until let Kurt tell him on Sunday or let this book tell him or that. It's my responsibility, obviously, to study and, 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 and proclaim these things to you all. But God, is, God wants people to know them. So when you are hearing these things, like, what I wouldn't, I wouldn't make everything a connection. Or if you think, like, hey, this is a cool thought. But I wouldn't. There's a difference between saying this is what the Bible is teaching and this is a cool thought. 
That's a, there's a difference, all right? There's a difference between, like, the Bible is saying this for this reason. A lot of people do that, and that's not really true. It's a cool thought, though, or it's a great experience that you had, but that's not what the Bible is actually saying or teaching, right? So you don't, we don't want to make doctrines out of our experiences, nor do we want to make biblical statements that are true out of some insights that could be helpful, right? So I would put them in categories of, okay, the Bible clearly is making this connection, and this is an interesting thought that may or may not be true. And you just keep it moving. But the Lord wants to show you his stuff. Like, it's not like, again, he's not sitting there waiting for me to tell it. I mean, obviously, again, it's my responsibility, but I think the Lord wants us to see it. I just think we have to be careful that, and this is the other thing you have to remember, too. And this isn't to make anybody feel like, oh, I have to read it. But every time you read your Bible, you're reading an English translation of another language and different variations. They're different. Every Bible has a different emphasis. Like, I personally don't read the NIV. I just don't read the NIV because it paraphrases too much what was really meant. Now, you can still learn from that, but I want to get what was actually said. But some of the ways that they talk, like, you have to think, if you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading Hebrew, right? That's a different language that many of us don't know. If you're reading the New Testament, you're reading an English translation of Koine Greek, which is a dead language. It no longer exists. So you have to actually, you can't just go to Greece and use it, and they'll be like, what are you talking about? They might get a couple of things. They might be like, man, what's wrong with this dude? It'd be like somebody talking to you and just messing it, like, sound like Bizarro. It's like, like, like Yoda. The world is not, and it's just like, what? That's how you'll sound if you try to read Koinea Greek. It's a dead language. They don't speak this in Greece. So you have to understand, when you read an English translation, you're reading someone who translated the Bible, and then the translation will have a particular purpose. So while like New Living Translation, NIV, they're helpful for really easy reading, they will paraphrase things that uh, sometimes I want to know what was closer to what was actually said. That's why I said for this series I'm doing an ESV because it's essentially literal. That's why sometimes the sentences are clunky because Greek, they don't talk like the way we talk. You know, they don't have a lot of, in Hebrew, they don't even have uh, vowels. It's all consonants. So just every word, and just take out all the vowels, and you'd be like, what? What is that? It would look like symbols, and no, they don't even have vowels. So again, understanding when you're reading your Bible, you're reading a translation of another language, and some translations are just better than others. Uh, we would need to have, you'd have to, you could ask me afterwards, because you don't have a mic, and everyone couldn't hear you. Or unless you want to give it, does that, who has it? You have the mic? I do. All right, just, yeah, just text it in, thank you. Um, so, uh, speaking about languages, the uh, connection between palm and palm, palm tree, palm man, mm -hmm. is that a Hebrew connection or is it um, because they share the same name, like pronunciation of the palm tree, palm man? So, is the double meaning of the word palm only discoverable in English? Is the question that was submitted. Well, there would be a different word for palm mm -hmm. in the Hebrew than palm in the hand, right? So you would, those are two different words because they're describing two different things. But the connection is not the original language as much as what the actual thing represents, right? The intentionality of God. Because you have to think about, when I say God is intentional, I mean down to every detail, right? So you think like, so, when I, so let's use what I said earlier. Okay, why is this detail here? Why did God choose for Jesus to die through a crucifixion where nails go through his hands. Like, why that death? 
if we're being honest, in Judaism, in Jesus' day, if you claim to be God, that's blasphemy and you get stoned. That's why Pilate was like, you go kill him. Like he's, I don't, I don't care if he's claiming to be God. You kill him. Do it. But they were like, no, we can't because it's, we're about to celebrate Passover and we can't do that. They was lying, right? They could have. Like, he was like, you kill him. Remember in Matthew 4 after he read from Isaiah and then it said, he said, this, this, this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. People go, what they do? They picked up stones. And then it said, Jesus just went through them. They didn't know what happened. They was grabbing rocks and was like, where'd he go? And he was just walking through them, smooth. It's like there, right here, man. <laughs> just walked through them, right? You know why? Because it wasn't his time to die, and he wasn't supposed to die like that. So when you think about God is intentional, why did you choose this? Well, now, next week, we're going to explain a little bit more why. But the idea is not coming from the, the original, the Hebrew or the Greek word for palm. It's coming from the idea of God's intentionality and, and helping us understand, why did you do these things the way you did them? Why have them carved this image all over the inner temple? Like, for what? Like, that's a lot of, I mean, when you, it was everywhere. That took a lot of work. Why did God show Ezekiel in a vision? Because that, 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 that's so significant to God that he wanted Ezekiel to see it. Why did he want that in the temple, in the inner sanctuary? Why is a palm tree out of all the trees the one that you use for Jesus to begin the Passion Week? All those things, they, they, you start to wrestle with them and you think, wow. Then you see the parallelism in the Bible. Wow, why is it called the Passion Week? He could have just died on a particular day like it's nothing. But no, wanted to be clear, I'm coming on Sunday. Here's what happens on Tuesday. Here's what happens on Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I die. The beginning of the week, next Sunday, I come back and we start again. But we'll get to some of that next week. So that so it's not connected to the original language of the next one. So back to um, the um, <clears throat> you know reading the Bible for yourself. Um, can we can we just trust the word despite the translation issues and never having a Hebrew translator app? Um, can we trust that? The Lord is going to talk to us and be active with us through his word and communicating with us through his word. Uh, 100%. Like, I'm sorry if I gave it the impression otherwise, of course. Like, I, 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 you know, I said it's my job to study on that level, but the Lord knows that the majority, the vast majority of people aren't going to read Greek and Hebrew. That's why we have it. That's why the Bible is pretty, I mean, there's, there, I, you know, we had some people who used to be members here that worked for Wycliffe. And they, we sent them out as missionaries a couple years ago, and um, they were one of they worked for Wycliffe Bible Translation, and their job was to translate the Bible in every language, right? So that's the point. Like you, God wants you to be able to read it from what you're getting. What I described, the questions that I asked when I said one idea, two questions, had nothing to do with Hebrew or Greek. I was I don't read the Hebrew and Greek all the time. I don't read them until it's time to actually preach. I'll peek at them and see. I just read. I just read the Bible, the English translation that I have. My point about the English translation is sometimes we'll be like, but look, it says right here. In the, and you're, what I'm saying is when you do that, you're, you're, you're really commenting on a translation of a different language. So on one, it's not that it, you can't trust it, but it's like, oh, well, it says this over here in this translation. I've seen people fight over different translations, and it's like, but that's just the way that they chose to translate that. 
They chose the but that, but if the Bible will largely be written, uh, read by people who are reading whatever language they speak. So absolutely, yeah. All right, the last two uh, questions are more general um, than this particular uh, message, but um, one person wants to know um, why did God allow sin to come into the world? Well, I mean, so we don't know why, ultimately. I mean, we could give a, lot of, a number of things that God let. But here's what I would say, based on what we've already talked about, if you've been in the series. One, in order for God to create beings that genuinely love them and worship them, they have to have a free will. Right? People think that, like, that, like God wants robots. Nah, he wants people who willingly love him. That's why he reward, Hebrews 11.6, right? He rewards those who diligently seek him. Why? Because it's a choice to diligently seek him or not. And everybody's not going to do that. Some of us right now pretend like we're too busy to press into the world when we're just not. We just don't feel like it. Yeah. It's not as entertaining as binge watching a show or talking on the phone or just relaxing. It's not as entertaining. We don't get the same immediate joy from it, the same pleasure from it, so we don't do it. So we depend on other people to do it, and then we, but we're supposed to do that, right? I mean, that's Hebrews 5. Like, we're, many of you should be teachers of the law, but are, need to learn the basic oracles. How could you be a Christian for some odd years and you're still at 101, right? That's, I'm not making fun of anyone. That's just due to a lack of pursuit. So it's always a choice. So God gave even divine beings free will. He did not create beings that I can tell from the Bible that they're forced to obey him. Even Jesus coming in human form, some people will argue there's no way Jesus could have sinned because he's God. Then you can't say any of his temptations are real then. If it's impossible for me to give in, now I don't mean it's possible like he would give in, but if it's impossible for Jesus to give in to any sin, then what were the temptations for then? What were the temptations? Like they were just fake then. No, it was even Jesus, fully God, as a human being, had a free will that he could have done this, but he didn't. And that's the point. So when sin comes into the world, because God gives beings a free will, including supernatural beings. And for whatever reason, so this, I, again, you can't prove this, right? I'm shooting from half court what I'm about to say. I honestly think, like, if there's no evil in the world, let's just say if God creates all these divine beings and everything is good, then there's no, there's no evil. There's actually no good either on one level. And what I mean is because it's just a normal way of life. It's just all you know. It's a, this is how you are. This is how you act. This is how you relate to God. That's all you know. There's nothing. Fish don't know anything but just water. It's not until a fish gets caught and they get pulled out and now they can't breathe. That's why them eyes are all googly. <laughs> They're like, hold on. They can't breathe, right? It's not until they realize, oh, there's another. If the world has no evil, then on one level, you don't really know what good is because it's just the same thing all the time. It's just the same thing. It's just the same old, same old. You know, my kids only know me as their dad. 
it's not, now God forbid, but if something happened to me and then, and then they had another dad, they would compare, well, my dad did this, this dad does that. They don't know any other dads. They don't know anything. So when they say you're the best dad, I'm grateful, but like they don't got no other comparison. <laughs> I mean, they might be watching some of y'all, but I'm just saying like, there's no comparison, right? They can't say that. So, No, nah, but there's, there's just no, there's no comparison, right? So what you have is a, a sense where God creates beings with free will, and those, free, those, those beings are able to do things that would displease God, and God allows for that. But what he did, but knowing all things, God had a plan for that. So his plan was, look, all right, this is going to happen, but to redeem everyone, and honestly, to be honest, to give no one an excuse like, you can, you can get mad at all the, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago. All of us suffer in varying degrees, right? We all have things that we're disappointed. Like, why did God let this happen? All of these things, right? Because sometimes in our minds, we think that God should prevent us from suffering because a good God would, right? But again, that same God said, all right, I'm going to let my son, well, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer for the sins of the people that I create. That's why there's no excuse. Because you can't say, well, God, that's not fair. I went through this. It's like, really? That's not fair. I became a human being, and I died brutally so that you could believe in me and spend eternity with me. What's not fair would be to allow you to not believe that and still be with me. That's what's not fair. So, again, God allowing evil into the world one, it establishes his holiness and how good he is. But then when we get to heaven, there won't be evil, but there, there, but we'll have remembered what evil was like. And so we're going to appreciate his presence and where there's no more temptation to sin because we're going to be like him. That's what's going to make heaven sweet. It's going to be, we remember, that's why Paul said, I consider, Romans 8, 18. That our present sufferings are not worth being compared, right? Because he's seen heaven and he knows, oh, man, what happens when we get there is so, this is why he said, man, to, to die is gain, right? To die with the Lord. So again, that's why I think evil exists because God gave people free will. But to undo what evil did, it's not unfair that any of us suffer because all of us have sinned and are worthy of God's judgment. It's not unfair. I'm not mocking what people go through. I hate suffering. I don't like it at all. But I understand what it is. And I understand that Jesus, God who created us, said, you know what? I'm going to suffer too. And I'm going to take on the full punishment. Up to this point, as of right now, this very second, as of April 2nd, 1205, no one has experienced the full wrath of God except God himself. Now, at some point, Satan and all the people who were thrown in the lake of burning fire in Revelation 20, they're going to experience it. But right now, no one has. Only God himself has. Only God himself has experienced that level of suffering. So that's, that's a long story of why evil is here and how God said, you know what? I'm going to remedy the suffering and the evil in the world. I'm going to recreate the week that I created everything and recreate it in the week that I die. The week that we recreate, the week that I created life, will recreate it in the week that I give my life. And then he, and that's it. It's a crazy reality. 
There's no other. I mean, you say what you want about God. We could all have a thing or two that we don't like, but there's no other. The universe doesn't do this. He would be talking about the universe. Like, well, I was watching this Erica Badu video uh, interview the other day, and she's just talking like the universe is this and that. And I was just looking at this woman like, fam, you don't even know. You don't even know what's past Jupiter. Like, you have no, the universe. What? Like, the universe doesn't do nothing. The universe cannot exist unless God allows it to exist. The universe can't do nothing on its own. People, there's no other religion, faith, idea that answers the questions and that that God does what Jesus did. There's none. There's no God that was like, you know what, Zeus, none of them. Not, not Shiva the destroyer, not Allah. There's no one that said, you know what, man, let me go down to humanity and obey myself perfectly and then punish myself fully and then let people who are going to continue to sin after believing in me still be forgiven and come stay with me. If you can find a better uh, Christian, if you can find a better God than that, let me know. But until then, I'm, I, I, just, I just think people are just wild. And it shows you just the hard hardness of heart. Like even all the things that we don't like about God, man, God decided to do everything for us. It's incredible to me what we get to be aware of, that we get to call him our father, that we get to be Christians. Like a lot of us just abuse it. We're just not tripping. And that's not because God, something's wrong with God. It's just something's wrong with us. Last one? All right. You sure? All right, bet. <laughs> All right. If, you ha if you're here and you have a question that you can ask, you obviously feel free to come up and talk to me. And, uh, but let's, if you haven't gotten your communion, please get that. We're going to end at